This is Rod Allen. This is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today we'll be joined by Kim Ondrick, the head learner from Quashintal Mill Bay Nature School on Vancouver Island. But y'all, before we jump in with Kim, I'd just like to ask you about uh, some recent news from Harvard. Uh, in 2019, the president of Harvard commissioned a report on the university's historical ties to slavery and the eugenics movement, and and that report has just been released. and And I and I, it, it's a topic we've touched on before, but wondering um, your response to that and how how you're thinking about that as a as a member of the Harvard community. Sure. First, just a a couple of facts for our listeners. So the report found that Harvard's faculty, staff, and leaders enslaved more than 70 Black and Native American people from the school's founding in 1636 to 1783. It cautions that that figure is almost certainly an undercount. You could probably remove the almost. And it says, enslaved men and women served Harvard presidents and professors and fed and cared for Harvard students. Moreover, throughout this period and well into the 19th century, the university and its donors benefited from extensive financial ties to slavery. And then there is a a commitment to spend $100 million, not yet clear exactly how, to in some way atone or not sure what the right word is, but acknowledge the moral responsibility that comes with having done that uh, as the university. So my reaction, I mean, you know, it would be nice if things ever emerged before outside events pushed them to emerge. As you know, there's been this whole question of uh, names in lots of different prominent institutions, including Ivy League universities, you know, things in the school that are named after former slaveholders and so forth. And so I think that and the Black Lives Matter movement sort of prompted this. So, you know, we'll we'll kind of see. It seems like a good first step to acknowledge. And then I guess the other obvious thing to say would be the fact that slavery, the direct holding of slaves is two centuries old doesn't mean that there aren't many other types of uh, injustice the university has perpetuated over the many years since then, which, you know, this is the university that sanctioned uh, researchers measuring the size of people's skulls and concluding on the basis of those sizes that, you know, different races had different genetic inheritances like that. That was peer reviewed research a hundred years ago. So, yeah, so there's, there's a long way to go, but it's a, it's a good step. What, uh, what, what was your reaction from someone from outside the university? Uh, well, I thought it was, it was a great, like you say, a great first step, that acknowledgement and, you know, let's, let's agree on some facts about the history. And I, I think that's a, a great place, right? Reconciliation always starts with truth. And so starting to tell, to tell that truth. And I'm curious, Joel, what's the, what's the, and it might be too soon to tell, but what's sort of the chatter like amongst the university? Do you think they're embracing this, this report and, and the, and the movement forward? Are they, I wouldn't say looking forward to it, but are they, are are they hopeful about its outcomes and and processes? How deep in, into the conversation are folks in the Harvard community? Well, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer because 
I teach at the graduate school of education and, you know, there's a lot of internal politics around our patterns of hiring and tenuring and the racial diversity or lack thereof of that process. And so all of that arises, like creates considerable skepticism among a lot of people about the university, sort of like at the end of the day, like who are your students, who are your faculty, what sort of commitments are you willing to make? So I think for a lot of people, this report will be read in that context. Uh, you probably saw the thing a little while ago about Cornell West being not put up for tenure at the university and a lot of students and other folks being unhappy about that. So I think, you know, it depends on who you are, but I'm imagining that there's a lot of skepticism of the university and its commitment to racial equity and that probably this report, I mean, I'm, I don't think anyone could say this report's not a good thing, but I think that it could be, it will be read in light of that for a lot of people. Kim, Kim, we haven't really formally introduced you yet, but you, but you've, you know, we will with you also talk about sort of truth and reconciliation as it's playing out in your in the Vancouver Island, BC Canadian context. What what what's your take on this? I guess my first thought is, um, just like my ancestors, you know, um, took land away from Indigenous people in Canada for generations, and my husband and I have a house now um, as a result of that accumulated wealth because of the the taking away of land so i think i i used to think that i'd hear those stories and think that was awful and 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 be quite judgmental and i think i'm becoming a lot more aware that i myself have benefited from those kinds of practices not identical but certainly in the same spirit that they happened um with my family and uh yeah it's it's a heaviness around privilege and and now what how, how do I take that up and um, how do I respond? How does my family respond? And we're trying to figure that out together as opposed to judging other institutions or as though, you know, my family didn't directly uh, benefit because they did. Yeah, and, and, and I think fair to say too, that, you know, Harvard is not the only institution, you know, of higher learning in the U.S. that, that is, ha has a similar history uh, or Canada for that matter. So, for sure, Joel. Maybe it's time to introduce our guest. Yeah, let's do it. Seeing as how, seeing as how we've already met Kim, I've really been looking forward to having Kim on the podcast. I've known Kim for uh, a number of years. In fact, Kim, I was just looking through some pictures on an old phone that I'm about to to uh, swap out, and um, I see this green VW van uh, that. <laughs> When we held you captive, when I was held ca uh, held captive by uh, Kim and her co and her comrade at arms, Murray, uh, but that's another story. So I've been looking forward to having Kim on on the on the podcast. Kim Andrick to me exemplifies so many of the things that make me feel confident about the future of schooling. She's a courageous leader. She's fierce. She's values driven. She acts in accordance with her beliefs about what makes great learning, both for kids and for adults. And that fearlessness of acting in ways that support her beliefs and the beliefs of uh, and the values of 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 the school, I, I just don't see very often. And and I, I'm in awe of that with Kim. She is founder of uh, Quishintal Mill Bay Nature School, a K to six. Although we'll we'll uh, 
deconstruct that whole K to six thing. I'm sure public school. Uh, another interesting feature is that Kim's and all this in a in a public school setting, and so uh, again, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that. So Kim, welcome to Free Range Humans. I'm really honored to be here. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Joe. So Kim, maybe we could start. Can tell us a little bit about your personal origin story. How how did you get to be Kim Andrick? <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a tricky question. No, um, in terms of this context, I think about myself as a child. I, I was very aware of of my world and the adults in my world and what was going on when I was very young. I can remember analyzing my mom's friends when she, I was about three. So if, whatever that is inside of me, I always was very observant. And I found school from the very beginnings to be a place of enormous performance stress. I happen to be a performer. I was a da- I'm was a dancer. So in terms of like knowing how to cope with performance stress, I, I wouldn't say I was an anxious child. I, I knew how to cope with it, but I felt it deeply. I felt that it was very clear. Um, I started school in 1971. It was very clear what the teacher expected, what the institution expected. It was very clear uh, what, what we were supposed to be doing. I was one of those children who would then correct other kids who weren't doing it because that's what you do. And I would say at about maybe fifth grade, I started to notice how children were being treated who didn't know how to do that. It started to really bother me. I remember sitting in my desk and observing teachers dumping desks of kids who, you know, had messy desks or berating kids that, you know, were being silly or whatever. And I grew up in a in a place that was a pretty privileged, I guess, and, and not a lot of diversity. And yet it seems like the story is pretty common that there's always going to be kids who aren't willing to conform. And my dad was a real high performance guy. And so I had and, and a wonderful dad. So I had his influence in me. And then my mom was much more about social justice. So I had her influence in me and she worked with adults with special needs and stuff. So it was a very confusing, my whole, I feel like my whole childhood was super confusing because I knew that it wasn't okay what was happening and I wanted to win. <clears throat> so I characterized myself as finishing high school with top grades, scholarships and feeling very lonely, very detached from who I really am. And I just remember feeling I wouldn't say I felt like an imposter I felt like if this is kind of what it is I don't I don't really get it and yet also doing well in school not being a science person so of course I was going to be a lawyer and and uh, that sort of being the path that I was traveling down and I think as I started to develop core competencies that's how I characterize it now as I started to understand maybe why I was lonely and why I had trouble with friendships because when you're in a very competitive environment being friends with people isn't helpful you know it's it's easier to clear out the path and and just take it up yourself and as I was in university and started to you know meet people and and enjoy that and start to become more of who I am and away from my parents and their influences I decided to instead take up a degree in special education uh, at the University of British Columbia. And they were, it was actually, it's funny, it brought out my competitive streak because it was the last year they were offering seats in that program. And so that's what I think really pushed me to, to 
steer away from writing the LSAT and instead go into special education. And I think in that environment really saw that it that was the site in, in the 1980s, certainly of a lot of change in British Columbia, a lot of shifting voices, parents saying, no, my child's going to go to public school like, like all the other kids. And feeling like that, the excitement and kind of the social justice of that. I had shadowed a Crown uh, prosecutor and because figured that I wouldn't be a defense attorney with the kind of my heart and my my beliefs and then started realizing watching her for a few you know I, I spent a couple of weeks uh shadowing her realized I'd much rather start with younger children than try to help people who are 32. That's sort of how I found myself as teacher. I think I always loved kids a lot. I enjoyed um encouraging kids to be themselves. I worked as a parks and recreation supervisor all through university where I'd have it'd be myself and another kind of early adult with 100 kids in a gym for the whole summer ages 5 to 12 and I, I think th those were real formative years of learning how to create learning really fun learning opportunities for diverse groups of humans and often kids whose parents were working and they didn't really want to be there in the first place. I'm struck, Kim, um, and, and before Joel jumps in with a question, I, I'm I'm struck by your comment of of sort of yourself at, at graduation from high school of I've won the game, but I'm not sure what the game is. And and that's almost the exact language that we used in British Columbia at the beginnings of that transformation process that we're still in, about, you know, BC sitting at the top of the PISA charts and all those things. So we're sort of winners, but we're not sure we're in the right game. Right. And and having to re rethink a bunch of stuff. So that that's uh, really, um, really quite fascinating. And the word for me, I think soullessness, there was a soullessness about it. Right. So, yeah, your cognitive brain can get activated by being stoked that you memorized a bunch of stuff or were able to write an essay that, you know, that allowed you to get more money to be able to go to university. But there was a soullessness about it. I didn't I don't think I had a voice. I don't think I understood even my voice until probably I was 35 years old because I was just used to jumping through hoops and, and doing what I was supposed to do rather than, is that even a hoop I want to jump through or, or what is the hoop in the first place? Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of Carol Black. She has this idea of the evaluative gaze and it, the sort of the core idea is that, you know, when people are looking at you and judging you for some purpose, whatever intrinsic motivation you might have had for that thing, you know, diminishes under the gaze. And, you know, she connects it to the way that, you know, women feel the gaze on their bodies all the time. And that this is sort of like the school version of that. There's a great quote. She says, as philosopher Martin Buber might have put it, the stance of true relationship says to the other, I, thou, the evaluative gaze says, I, it. It says, quote, I am the subject, you are the object. I know what you are. I know what you should be. I know what standards, in quotes, you must meet. It is a godlike stance, which is actually a big deal, even if you think you are a fair and friendly God. Bingo. And so <laughs> I, I think there's, I remember reading that a few years ago and thinking this really captures a lot of what, what happens. Yeah, I was very moved by Martin Buber's idea of I thou. It's very powerful. And the connection, I guess I would say in my life is I love dancing from the time I could walk. And my mom was, didn't put me in the dance school where there was competition, which is interesting and something I should be grateful for. She instead put me in the dance school that didn't have competition. Now there's always competition, 
who gets the parts, all that. But the actual, as a dancer, I just uh, emerged into who I was as opposed to um, trying to win a prize. So I'm grateful for that because dance has always been uh, a source of great joy for me. And so then I had the fortunate opportunity of uh, visiting the Mill Bay Nature School somewhere later in life, the crazy man with whom I co-host a podcast, but this crazy woman who's joining us on the podcast in charge of a school. So with these different beliefs about learning, like what did that make you think that you should, you should do in the school and what, 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 what might an alternative look like and what, what would that be guided by? Well, you know, Mill Bay Nature School is almost like the swan song of many years of, of being crazy in education. I think the gift for me was Rod actually saw that my craziness was something that was good <laughs> as opposed to scary, but I'd always done different, different work that I, I became a teacher to change the system, right? Because I was looking at not just supporting children with special needs, but what about the children in the class who were who were also could be tempted to fall prey to you know that superstar competitive game playing and some of those pe those children will have children with special needs one day that's just the way it is so how do we create an environment where the struggling kids receive support to thrive from kids who don't struggle as much and vice versa the kids who you know who naturally thrive in, in any environment really they can figure it out how do they learn from kids that don't because that's the lesson I never learned and I it took me a long time and I think I still struggle with it I think I still struggle with working with staff who are different than me and that uh, maybe have had trauma that I haven't had and I I think those that can't be understated as a root in many social problems it, you know that's how I see it that that there are people who undergo lots of things in their lives that that change the way they're able to be, particularly in stressful situations. Um, yeah. So, anyways, that, that was my beginnings as a as a teacher, and then I think I just learned right off the bat that it was not popular. Other staff did not like the fact that children with special needs were starting school in kindergarten. Why were they there? They couldn't sit in a desk. They couldn't do the spelling. So, what's the point exactly? So. I think it it really um, helped my development as a courageous leader, as Rod characterizes me as, because I wasn't popular. You know, I started education as an unpopular person, promoting unpopular ideas and making other teachers feel inadequate. Like that was my opening gambit at 22. So I do think that was a huge advantage because I had to find, you know, I'm I'm pre I'm a fighter by nature, so. That wasn't the hard part. I think it was hard to figure out how to be respectful in that and to allow other people to have differing opinions, but passionately love those children and continually show how capable they are when you change the environment. And even then, before the renewed curriculum, it was still pretty clear that there were many ways that those kids could be successful in classes, as long as you didn't, you know, confine them to a desk and a pencil and a, and a piece of paper, right? Yeah, that was my opening part of maybe how I became kind of more crazy was, you know, identifying not with the dominant discourse because it was not, you know, I, I liken it to not being invited to birthday parties. I felt like that. I felt like the kid who was invited to birthday parties because I wasn't saying the things that comforted people. I was saying the things that disrupted people. 
And I, I have to say, I, I didn't really like that. It wasn't that I enjoyed that role. It was, it took me a long time. And I'd say even today, I think when people claim that I'm transgressing or not following what we should be following in, in BC, um, it's taken me a long time to be okay with that judgment. It's the valid of gaze again. And, and just to be able to say, I don't think I'm transgressing. <laughs> I'd say at 56 now, I can say gently, I don't think I'm transgressing. And then just to leave it there for people to consider. So Kim, we continue the story. So uh, you spent, I, I know, and you'll probably talk about it a bit as we move through this at Vernon Community School, uh, a, a sort of a school within a school that was you and a colleague uh, and, and some others um, helped to develop and help kids see another path forward for success. And and then we, we come to, to Mill Bay Nature School and I'm curious what was in your, what was in your thinking as you, you sort of arrived here in couch and, and were given a kind of a blank check to, I shouldn't say check because checks are denote money. Um, <laughs> no money. It was a blank, blank check. <laughs> it, was, it was a blank slate uh, to, to sort of, to sort of write a script on and, and to create something. What were some of those big rocks that you wanted to put together first as you were beginning that creative initial sort of construction process? I think I've known from the beginnings, I think if I go back to the the idea of, of not being invited to birthday parties, I knew that I need to affiliate with people who could relate to that idea or had similar beliefs, and then often would look for them in leadership, right? Because I understood power dynamics and I understood that it was important also to legitimize my work by having people that were in, in positions of power to even quietly say to me, you're doing a good job, like just keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I knew coming to Mill Bay, although I had a lot of experience with startups and with working with children and families, I knew I could never do it myself ever, right? And at Vernon Community School, I think I, a big lesson I learned was what does co-creation actually mean? So this idea of composing something together, co-creating and, it, it's a tricky idea. It doesn't sound tricky, but the idea of we're all building something together, but what exactly are we building together? And at Vernon Community School, I think we didn't really know what that was. And so we, in, we encountered a lot of challenges uh, with parents, community people, uh, school people saying, what is it exactly that you're doing, that you're co-creating? And we'd have some it, it, it could be difficult at times um, to know how to work together, and yet, what are we building? So when I came to Mill Bay, I knew that we needed to have a blueprint of what it is that we were trying to build. And certainly, you had um, been a mentor for me and listening to you, not necessarily as my boss, but as a leader, a passionate leader in the in the um, provincial um, world. I would always go and hear you speak when you were in town, because... I needed that to build me up. Um, when you're swimming against the flow, it's it's tricky and tiring. So the blueprint that I put together was, was sort of what are the big ideas that this school will be rooted in? And you um, gave me some of those ideas. Denise Augustine, who was your first person on the podcast, she also did. It was very clear um, in small conversations that this needed to be a place that ultimately included at Cowich and Malahat, Hulkamunum speaking people, speaking children, 
that was like an, like that wasn't an option how that happened you know that's still in process here i would say but i knew that was important so i spent the first month because the school is being renovated i couldn't actually be in the building so i i spent the first month creating a blueprint of of what we're going to be about and i called it a field guide and I used all the learning that I had um, done at, at Vernon Community School that was with older students, but it was still building, a, it was still creating a new kind of way of, of um, offering uh, learning and teaching. And that blueprint, I think, has been in many ways our saving grace, because uh, we really haven't changed it. And it is what we go back to. Uh, staff does, uh, parents do, new parents read it. And it then it's saying if you'd like to co-create something that's based in these things then that's what co-creation means right so we're not going to put up for grabs that we're going to use shame or punishment we're not using shame and punishment so if you'd like to co-create what else it might look like then you're totally welcome i think i'm mature enough uh, i guess as a human myself that i could debatable uh, maybe not <laughs> but i i felt like i could I could sit with that and it, it wasn't I was standing on the shoulders of a lot of giants when I wrote that it wasn't just from within me it was you know rooted in in research and a lot of academic some amazing Mel Noddings Rachel Kessler some amazing contemplative people Parker Palmer who you know had really uh, John Dewey had really um helped me to understand what I was doing and then I used that to help other people understand what I was you know trying to initiate would it be fair to say, Kim, that 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 now you've used the term blueprint, and if you know in architecture world, blueprints have every single detail nailed down, and and as I think about that field guide, it was really clear on the on the what, and less clear on the how. That was so so the co construction was around the how, but 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 you were very clear on the what. I'd almost see it like not as much architectural, but almost like landscape, like almost like a gardening, more a gardening plan, saying this is kind of my dream garden, uh, a place, you know, for all kinds of plants to thrive and develop. But then you don't know what seeds are coming and you don't know, you don't know the climate, you don't know, there's a lot of unknowns. But there was a there was a sense of this is, you know, th these are the constraints. I don't know if constraints is the right word. I'm not sure what the right word is, but it, it's now turned into kind of school philosophy. And it's helped me even with hiring because our contract, um, which isn't just about seniority, also says you need to be in alignment with school's philosophy. And that's sort of been a unintended outcome because now when a teacher comes, I actually have a staff of people that are paddling together, which I, I don't think always happens in schools. I didn't even know that that would happen. That just kind of happened um, magically. So for those who haven't uh, visited your school, can you paint us a, a picture? Like, what does it look like? What are the students doing? Are there teachers in the same sense that we normally have teachers? Not everyone has had the pleasure of visiting Mill Bay. So try to paint a podcast picture for those who haven't been there yet. And then I want to ask you a, a question or two about it. You were there when it was very, in its very baby, baby place. And I was directed by the other crazy guy to be super disruptive that day. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I'd say what, what, 
what's different about the school, I guess, compared to like our stereotypical idea of school is if you were to drive up and get out of your car, immediately five kids would come up to you and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, who are you? And what are you doing? And they would then say, would you like to come and meet Tanya, the secretary, and she could help you? Or could I take you on a tour? Because our focus at our school is core competency development, which is a huge part of the BC curriculum, you'll see children who have agency and confidence and voice and and little like five-year-olds, but also 12-year-olds. There, there's not any fear here. I'd say it's a their fear is very small at this school. Children uh, called adults by their first names. There's a huge emphasis on respect, but respect first coming from adults to kids. You'll hear people saying, come on, guys, let's go outside. You know, if they're walking, you know, in the halls or, or in classrooms, but we don't lock doors. You know, that's that part of our culture isn't you don't even I don't even think about it anymore. Right. Um, I was used to being in schools where you couldn't wear hats and doors were locked and everyone lined up. So we don't have a bell. We actually don't have a bell a system here. So I blow blow a moose call. That's what I think the first day of school, I blew a whistle and went, that doesn't feel right. So then I used my husband, who's a hunter, his moose call, and that felt right. So when you come to our school, the, the bell is a moose call. And then you'll just see kids running from all different areas. We have about five acres of clear cut, which we're trying to restore. Uh, there's, you know, rolling sewer tubes and big piles of dirt and gardens and kids uh, riding bikes and skateboarding and rolling things off other things and using materials in creative ways. It's very child-centered, meaning that the children have really been a voice in how it's created. I wouldn't call it child-led. I think that's an important distinction. Child-centered, so the children feel like they are a really big part of the community um, and making really important decisions and that the adults are there to support that and to facilitate that. Today, I got a call from a parent whose 11-year-old was upset about math yesterday, and she said, could you just come and pick her up? Because I don't want her to sit here and think that this is an out. So that's another odd thing. And I'm like, okay, yeah, like if we're actually a community, because Shintel means walking together, it was a gift from our elder. That means I went to their house, had a chat with her mom, and she got dressed and came to school. And we actually worked out the problem. So that's another part that's a little bit different. Uh, teachers sometimes will drive kids to school who just don't want to take the bus because it scares them. I don't know if you'd call it relaxed. I really do think it's child-centered. Is this something that this child needs? How do we make that happen? Um, it's acknowledging inequity. It's acknowledging that some children get their, their parents drive them to school and that other children have to come a long way on a bus. And if that's the reason they're not attending, then let's solve that. I pick up a little girl every day. We have a lovely time together, which is kind of therapeutic for both of us. And then she has a much better day. So that's something that's a little different. Mornings are spent in clans and the clans are developmental groupings. Children don't know what grades, we don't go by grades. Our curriculum is very developmental, K to, K to nine really. So there isn't a push to, to have to say a grade level, except when we do reporting formally twice a year. Um, and that's just to give parents a sense of where their child's sitting in comparison to, to other children of that, of that age. Um, throughout the province. Kim, could I just interject here just, just for a second? When you say our curriculum, you're talking about the BC provincial curriculum, right? So in British Columbia, we, we schools 
uh, and school districts aren't responsible for creating their own curriculum like they are in some places in the U.S. There's a there's a, a provincial curriculum for all. However, ninety eight percent I don't know most the vast majority of schools still put kids in grade groupings and and those kinds of things, whereas you do not. So it's it's your interpretation of the of the BC curriculum, and really how the BC curriculum has been structured to start to move towards the kind of structures that, that you have in place for kids. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you've said this on the podcast before, but the question is, is this policy or, or is this practice? And like almost everything is, is practice, you know, grades are artificial. There's nowhere that says that you have to group kids according to their ages. And when we do group kids according to age, which is one time a year when they write a foundational skills assessment, which is a requirement of the province, mostly to make sure that I'm doing my job and the teachers are doing their jobs in terms of literacy and numeracy development. When I gather those children, they are all gobsmacked that they were born in the same year. They think it's crazy. And the more developed kids say, this isn't fair. Like, why would you ever put kids in the same, that were born in the same year? It's fascinating, actually. It's a mini study. I thought it would be tricky when we when we didn't start the school with grades. I thought it would cause some, I don't know, critique or problems. It's actually been nothing. No, parent, it's like of no, it doesn't matter. It's like it, it never mattered in the first place. So I guess the other thing I'd add just to paint a picture of the school is um, you'll see children, not all the children respond to the moose horn or to the call from a teacher, um, but we have a real emphasis on, on respectful feedback. So you'll always see an adult go to the child. Sometimes it's me or a teacher that, you know, is not enrolling students at the time or their own teacher giving them feedback. And that's what we call it. And you'll see other children saying, I gave so-and-so feedback and they haven't listened or I gave them feedback and they did listen. So we really focus on assessment and evaluation being about, I've gave, given you feedback. And even what you might call traditionally um, uh, management, you know, behavior management. It's, it's a real emphasis on giving you respectful feedback and now you need to figure out what you're going to do with it. And then we really work hard at giving space and time for children to do it. And it's crazy when you just step back a bit, how many kids will then do it. You don't activate their counter will, you don't make them feel like I'm being bossed around again. They really are being asked as a human to figure out how they need to be right now. That's a powerful dynamic at our school and teachers are learning to do it more effectively all the time. So am I. And finally, in the afternoons, we have something called playful inquiries. So morning clans, we choose the groupings and decide what are the best uh, environments for, for each child to, to thrive in with, with teachers, because we acknowledge here that not every teacher is the same, that we all have different ways of being and different responses to stress and different skills and abilities. So we, we don't say that we're all the same. In the afternoons in Playful Inquiries, we are listening to the children and coming up with um, inquiry ideas that are, are emerging out of the children's conversations and, and their interests. And then we actually, as teachers, stand up and pitch our ideas with a little video and we pitch our ideas and try to sell it to the kids. And then the kids get to select. So the majority of our kids are between sort of kindergarten and grade four or five age, and they all get to choose kind of a first choice, a second choice, and a third choice, and we try to honor their first choices, but which inquiry they want to take up for about a five-week inquiry cycle, and we're starting to move into having then exhibitions of learning. I love the work that High Tech High does around exhibitions, and so we 
are um, moving into that so that parents um, and staff get to see what children are are exploring and taking up. Um, that is a real highlight here, because if you're a child, then you can go with your friend, right? If you have a, a friend in another class or a sibling, we never group siblings together. We really emphasize individuals to, to develop, but siblings will sometimes choose each other uh, for playful inquiries. So that's a really fun way for teachers too, to highlight their passions and their interests. And their it's a different role than the morning time when they're really focusing on literacy and numeracy. So, so Kim, you just st have started a new cycle fairly recently. What kinds of things are, are, are being pitched? What, what do those inquiries kind of look like? And I know they're from soup to nuts. They're all quite different, but what, what are some of the recent ones? One of them was on stop motion. So one of our teachers loves storytelling and she often does um, storytelling with little creatures and cars and stuff outside. And this time she said, I want to take storytelling to a different place and we're going to do stop motion. And so she talked about stop motion. Another uh, two teachers are partnering and they're doing the Lorax. So they're going to do a, a performance of the Lorax in five weeks. They were asking kids who wanted wanted to dance or sing or act or do set design or sometimes just like support, you know, cast with water or different things. So there's lots of lots of opportunities for different kinds of kids to um, take that up. I'm I could see that there's a growing group of older students who want to learn how to be your counselors outside during free play. And so I said that I would do a serious training. A session on on how to solve problems with your peers at free play and and interestingly i thought it would be predominantly older kids i have a number of five-year-olds who are like i'm so excited to learn how to do this another one was how do you how do you care for animals how do you care for animals well because animals are a big draw for many kids here lots of our kids live in rural um, spaces so they have lots of animals on their in their lives um so yeah that's a that's a taste of them that's great Rod, maybe one for you. When this school came into being, you were the kind of co-conspirator. You were the the superintendent. Can you tell me a little bit about like why did you put your eggs in this basket as a as a change strategy? Are you asking the what were you thinking question? <laughs> you know, there, there it was it was a combination of things and and you know, part of the role of a superintendent is there's all kinds of technical, mechanical things that you've got to sort out. You've got to have enough enough places for all the kids in your district. It, we're, we're a public district and we take all comers and we have to find places for them. So one of the drivers was that was that um, the school district was growing quite quickly at that point. It was about about 300 kids a year, so about a, an elementary school a year. And we just didn't have enough spaces fast enough for all the kids. And so we thought about it and, and, uh, you know, sort of from the technical mechanical side said, we need to reopen this school building that had been closed for, for eight years, which kind of raises a question of, so do you just create one more of the same in an old building or do you, or do you start thinking about doing some things differently? And I am a bit of a crazy person, I guess, but I, I like even as a superintendent to be quite disruptive and bring disruptive ideas and wanted to help folks throughout the district start to look at their work uh, with a critical lens and 
help to ask questions about why do we do the things we do? As Kim said, you know, so many of the things we do in public education are just because we've always done them that way. There's no rules. There's no requirement to do it that way. We just follow old patterns all the time. And so I, I knew Kim as, as, a, as a pretty disruptive force, and we had a quick chat and then threw her the keys to the school. Um, you asked me if I was getting, if I was tired of being strapped to the front of a fishing trawler. Right. Actually, that was actually what you said. <laughs> and I was tired of being strapped to the front of a fishing trawler. So, uh, and, 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 and we enticed Kim to, to, to move from Vernon, uh, out to couch. And my guess was, my bet was that by starting something like this, by making it a school of choice, so kids from across the district could choose to come there, it would start to act as a bit of a mirror and a window for all the practices that we had in the district. So Kim talked a little bit about hiring practices. So, you know, you don't just necessarily hire by seniority as the main driver, although that's sort of the practice, although there is the collective agreement didn't really say that, but practice was kind of that way to then uh, have be able to have conversations with the, the union about what's best fit. We all want the best fit for teachers. It's not just about seniority. It's about what's the best fit. And, and so we, you know, Mill Bay Nature School and Kim's work help us think through some of those conversations, uh, how we approached maintenance, like the, the maintenance of buildings. And, and we were going to open up this old school. And so, yes, there was a bunch of stuff that had to happen to, you know, take wood off the windows and clean up the insides and all those kinds of things. But, but Kim was really clear Let's not just cut the grass. Let's not just make it look like every other school. Let's get the kids in there and let's help them decide what they want and where they want it. So yes, the very first uh, several meetings that we had before the school was actually, we were allowed to be in the school, was out in you know knee-high, thigh-high grass because Kim didn't want it cut. And, and that caused our, our folks who were very proud of, of the maintenance work and the you know, grounds work that they do to be like, this, this doesn't look good. And, and so it helped us think about agency and really listening to kids and why are adults making those decisions when, when kids could make those decisions. So Kim helped us to think about lots of the patterns that we normally follow. And it did cause folks to go, hmm, you know, we, 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 we switched how we assigned carpenters and plumbers to schools to do, to do work. Cause some folks will go out there and go, I don't know what's going on out here. There's weird, there's kids in the hallways and, and kids are outside and they're muddy sometimes. And I don't know what to do with that. And, and other carpenters and, and folks will go, I love it out here. This is great. You know, I did, there's, there's a spirit here. And so we, we started to assign those kinds of folks differently, not just to Mill Bay school, but, but to all schools to try to have them you know, for example, if you're going to fix a light in a classroom, you don't have to wait till class is over. You could go and do that and actually turn that into a learning opportunity. Kids, okay, hey, what are you doing? Well, this is what I'm doing. Why do you put the ladder that way? Well, this is why we put the ladder this way. This is, right, and, and turn all those things, demystify them, bring them out in the open. So long story short, that, that was a huge part of it. And it was to give, it was also, last thing I'll talk about was to give parents more options and a lot of parents signed up for mill bay nature school before they even really knew what it was partly because it was being co-constructed as kim's described but also because they they wanted something different and they and they weren't sure what they wanted they just they they were pretty clear what they didn't want but weren't really sure what they did want and so mill bay's been a has been a great opportunity uh for them to 
to to invest themselves and in, in their kids and their learning in some in, in some different ways. And it's really gratifying to hear those comments from those parents that kind of took a bit of a gamble at the beginning, are so committed to that school and its future. I was at a meeting two, two nights ago, I think it was Kim out there just to watch the, the, the birth of sort of the next phase where, where, where it, where Quishintal takes on middle school age kids and sort of moves into the, you know, K to nine ish range. Um, and hear the passion in those, in those parents saying, we want our kids to stay here. We don't want them to move to another school. We, we really want this. I think we started with 75 kids, Kim, uh, and now it's over 200. Yeah. Like, so it's, grown fast in a, in, in a very few years. So it was an opportunity for disruption across the district. Now, the last thing I'll say, David Albury's work right around, it was really clear. And we tried to really make this clear that Kim and, and her staff were doing this highly innovative work on behalf of everyone. It, it was, this is, this is a, a little, not an experiment because we don't experiment with kids, but this is a, a model that we can run. And the things that we learn, we learn on behalf for everyone to, to benefit from. And, and, and so that, that's really been exciting too. Yeah. And the other thing is that it's sustainable. So, you know, if you're a superintendent for a period of time, the next superintendent comes in, he or she may or may not agree with the things that you were doing. But, um, you know, once you've got Kim in charge of a school, it's much harder to dislodge. So. Yes, Joel, I, I want to comment on that. Uh, my bet would be that when the next school expansion happens in, in the district, when, when there's going to be a, a, a new building or a new something, they're going to approach it more in a Mill Bay kind of way, not necessarily with the same focus that Kim has, but in terms of the let's let's build something a bit different. Let's let's bring parents into that conversation and let's not just by default create another school the same as is is all the rest kim you talked about your relationship with parents uh it's this is very much a co-constructed school with uh, from 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 my perspective from what i see with educators parents and students uh very much in a partnership but what how's that feel with with parents what's different I would say what I've learned, uh, what I would say now, I didn't go into it thinking this, but I have learned that when you center children, which is a very Hulkaminum, our elder just said from the beginning, the first thing he said was build community. And the second thing he said was center children. Um, those were the two key keys. So to build community means to involve everyone, right? So it's not just the staff and the kids it's also the parents. So right off the bat, I said to the parents who were interested in helping out that their job was not to raise money. Their job was to build community with us. So they did lots of um, gatherings and lots of opportunities for families to get to know each other. Because again, we're not a neighborhood school. So people are living way, uh, you know, far away from each other. But the second part of centering children I think I've, I'm coming to understand it means that we're co-parenting. And I actually think that's what's always been going on in schools, right? That someone else has your child for most of the day, right? They're tired when they go home. I'm tired when I go home, right? Like, so we're, I said that the other night to a parent who asked, what do we, if I don't agree with the things you're saying, 
that you think my child needs, or even that my child says they need? What if I don't agree as a parent? And I really thought about it. And I said, I think that when we agree that we're centering children, which is not negotiable, again, so that's a field guide-ish, you know, we've been instructed this way by Tusilam, so that's the way we're going. When we agree that we're centering children, then we have to put our egos to the side. Staff do, I do, parents do, and we have to say, who is this child and what do they need? Which is not easy. I have four children of my own, and I know there's always the longings we have for our children, and then there's who our children are. And I think when you really, when our staff is beautiful at really loving children, I've, I've really focused on that. You know, I want us to have a brilliant literacy and numeracy program. I want our kids to go on to anything they want to do in their lives. But to start off, I've had to really emphasize a pedagogy of love because that's not common in teacher training here anyways. And I've, I've really had to also demonstrate to teachers that I love them, that I'm willing to change and grow so they can. And they really are doing that with children. So I think parents are, have started to believe that. And so when we sit together and we talk and we center the child and usually they're there, you know, you have to put a lot of, of your own ego or your own um, frustrations even. A parent might have frustrations with staff or a staff may have frustrations with the way the family's operating. When you put it to the side, it's actually a pretty beautiful, gentle place that we're all together trying to sort out. And generally the kid has the answer anyways, right? It's more convincing us all that, and, and I'm okay with saying that to them. I'm, I tell them I'm their lawyer and I'm here to help, you know, that their voice is heard. And, and I'll say like, you need to keep saying, if it's not working, you need to keep telling us and complaining because, we think we're trying to, you know, um, to to provide or to um, operate in a way that's supporting that that growth that you you really long for. And I, I, you know, if you don't feel it, then complain, and and complain to me, and I will, you know, continue to take that seriously. And it's interesting. Initially, I think parents were really uncomfortable with the fact that their children had such a strong voice. And now I think they're starting to see the link between confidence and academic development. You know, I had a conversation yesterday with a parent who said, I now get it. You know, it's just taken longer than I wished for, for my child to be able to read and write at, at a level I think I thought they should. And I explained how, yeah, and in the pursuit of that, we didn't, we didn't sacrifice voice. We didn't sacrifice passion. We didn't sacrifice a lot of what we would call core competencies to get her there. So now she's got both. I think that is unusual. I think that that pedagogical design is unusual. And I feel like if we wait too long and shut kids down in core competencies in the pursuit of academic development, there's an expiration date on some of those things. They start to just become the child's personality. And I, I don't think they are. You know, I, I think that we owe it to our children to really pay attention to who they are and, and what they need as individuals. And then creatively figure out how do you inspire them in areas that they don't want to be <laughs> doing because it's hard for them. And that's, that's equally as important. And Kim, in your, in your, in your typical way, you walk the talk and I know that your parent rep, your, your, your parent advisory committee rep attends staff, attends staff meetings, which is, which is pretty unusual uh, as sort of a, a partner in, in that. Right. So that's, that's pretty cool. And, and Kim, we're just about out of time, but, but I want to touch on, and, and Joel, I think, I think we're probably heading for, uh, 
uh, a part two, uh, another conversation with with Tasilam. But you've mentioned Tasilam a few times, Kim, and and Jal and I have had the uh, I've worked with Tusilam as well when I was in Cowichan, and and Jal, you've had the privilege of working with with Tusilam on the DLD visit there. Could you briefly, Kim? help set up our next conversation that we'll, that we'll want to have with Tusilam around sort of how Tusilam became sort of the elder in residence and, and a real guiding force be, behind the work at, at Kushintol uh, and how that's affected. And I know this is now becoming like a long answer, but hopefully you can, again, set the stage for a, a future podcast and help create that focus of truth and reconciliation for yeah, I think I think much like how our uh, how the podcast opened with the conversation about um, Harvard and and kind of the historical um, challenges. Um, like in the last ten years, we're really at a time in Canada with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that it's no longer just optional to learn about whether you know what happened in the past. It, there's an ethical imperative, and I think as a, an educator, even more so. The first people's principles are woven throughout the curriculum. It's it's not just a personal decision anymore, whether you think it's important. It's it's just, it isn't optional. These people were on this land. We tried to destroy them and that's not okay. Uh, so I think when I came here, I had already done some work around decolonizing myself, understanding that, understanding that some of my own challenges as a child were related to colonial ways of, of being with children and raising children. And uh, Denise's strong emphasis on this needs to be a place for Indigenous health community speaking kids in this, in this, that was not optional either. And as a non-Indigenous person, I just do not believe that it's up to me to decide uh, like what any of that looks like. So I heard Tusilam speak at a um, gathering when I first moved here was very moved by his humility, his gentleness, his kindness to a predominantly settler group of people uh, who, if I was him, I would want to yell and scream and throw things at um, because it's so unfair. And he didn't. And so after it was over, I walked over to him and said, hey, I've been hired to start something new here and um, I need to do it with you. I can't do it myself. He said, okay, here's my number. Let's meet for coffee. And so he and his wife met me for coffee. And when I said, do you want to be an elder in residence, which I had really no idea what that meant, you know how we, but I'm like, I'm just going to say that. And she like inhaled, like, <gasps> like, like they'd been waiting to have somebody ask them this. And because I think we were starting something new, that's the gift that Rod gave me. It wasn't unlearning. I, most of my career has been unlearning or fighting against something. This has been building, some, making something, right, from, from the very beginnings. And so they have been who I have gone to um, because Rod and Denise left me. <laughs> they started this and then they left me. So I needed someone to be the North Star. I know that my knowledge is what it is, but it's a thin, it's thin and it's not, complete. And so he is who ha I have continually uh, gone back to. I have upset him. I have offended him. He has forgiven me. We have moved forward together. And um, now we're very good friends. I, I almost feel like he's my father in the Cowichan Valley. 
just today I went to his house because he made a mallet for a little guy who's here who needed that kind of support. And he just steps up and we just work together as a team now. I know that the staff even in, in the hard colonial uh, decolonizing work we've had to do, because it's from him and not from me, are willing to do things that are incredibly hard. So uh, just quickly, him moving us from staff meetings that are very triangle and top down and here's a bunch of information and only the really loud, brave people talk and everyone else is quiet to a consensus model where everyone speaks like a longhouse, there's a speaker. He created an entirely different way of being together that caused some people to be very upset. And we have just persisted and been able to persist because it was from him, right? So we, if we're saying we're practicing indigenous pedagogy, we're honoring the whole community speaking people, which we say, you know, every day in our acknowledgement and in the work we do with children, the staff is willing to set aside, I guess, ego and practices and, and the comfortable to move into things that are not comfortable. And I don't, we would never have been here without him. So I'm incredibly grateful. And when he shows up on our school grounds, he's like Mick Jagger. Like kids are like, right. And they want pictures with him and his autograph. And like, and so really, I remember Raji saying when I was first here, like, we need to give a, a leg up. This is not about equity. Like everyone's the same. This is about how do we take people who've had no power and, and opportunities and, and, and actually like help them like give a huge boost up. And I, when I see the children respond to Celan like that and kind of complain to me and treat me like, you know, like I'm their lawyer. And instead to Celan is seen as, as someone of great value that they love and they want to follow. I feel like we've done that, you know? And so I'm unbelievably grateful to him for forgiving me when I've messed up and, and just for being willing to walk together, right? To Kishintal and to do it even when it's been really hard. Yep. And for our listeners, Kim really is at the Mill Bay Nature School. You can hear some uh, <laughs> li- li- little uh, tinklings from outside. Uh, <laughs> They're lined up outside my door. <laughs> I lock the door. It never happens like that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> totally amazing. We can also attest that right before the podcast started, a child came in who'd had, a, uh, like I think, a ball taken from him on the playground and uh, Kim quite skillfully comforted said child and asked him very gently if he could find another adult to take care of him for a little bit since she had something to do. But it was pretty clear that on a normal day, like he was going to be able to stay at that lap till he was okay. So uh, we're, we're sorry to intrude on that. <laughs> thank, thank you, Kim. And absolutely. We, I, I think y'all, we need to have a, um, a whole episode around truth and reconciliation and, and, uh, and to seal them and, and perhaps a couple of other voices and, and to think through this because it is, um, as Kim has said, it's not, it's not for us to decide as settlers. It's, <laughs> it, if it, 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 it's, it's for the first nations folks. It's, it's for to uh, and Deb and, and, uh, and so on. And, and when he said, uh, recently he said to us, I can hear the echoes of our ancestors in these halls. I went, that's my measuring tool right there. Right. Um, like that's telling me that we're doing something well. Put, put that on your Fessel report. 
<clears throat> anyway, uh, Kim, we have come to the lightning round. Oh, dear. Yes. Okay. Um, this is the part of the program uh, where we go for short snapper answers. There are right answers and wrong answers. You will be graded. It'll just be a, a big bag of awesome. Well, and as a experienced, uh, you know, listener to the podcast, you, you know, might be more prepared than some of our guests. Let's see. I'd call you, I'd call myself a groupie, actually. I listen <laughs> all the time. <laughs> okay, so we should expect really good answers, John. Uh, thanks, no. thanks for setting that up, <laughs> raising the expectation. Kim, what's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? That reading and writing precedes uh, children knowing who they are and, and what matters to them and just all the core competencies that they're, they're backwards. All right. I used to think blank, and now I think blank. I used to think that hard things that happen to people, hard situations in children's lives in my own life, uh, diminished spirit and soul and mind. And, and now I think that with the right support and the right community and the right attentive gaze, I guess I call it that actually those hard things can can be the stuff of deep deep learning and transformation. It just takes a lot of sensitivity and and love and care. Kim, what's the biggest surprise you've had so far with Mill Bay Nature School? That the job of a principal um, does not require one to be behind a desk and uh, a screen, and you don't have to wear a tie. And um, you actually can be with kids all day long and do the principal job uh, after school, which is what I did as a teacher as well. Some of that's a myth, which I kind of myth busted. When I was in school, I had a principal who had a, a card, which he kept in his front pocket, which was a list of all the things he was going to do and all the places he was going to go in a day. And if you ran into him and you were not in the card, he would just ignore you and move on to whatever was next on his uh, oh schedule. Goodness. And huh. he got fired. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> he was not on somebody's card. <laughs> I, actually, I was actually shocked by it. I was like, there's no, I mean, sometimes there's work, but I can do it just after school. Like I do other, you know, stuff. So. Yeah. You, you can't function like that. I don't think. And last but not least, uh, what is something that you're reading, listening to, or someone you had a conversation with that's making you think? Uh, I think um, I think I always am challenged by uh, children that have had enormous trauma. I'm I'm super challenged by a system and adults who often kind of like sort of um, agitate them. And, and always trying to wonder, you know, what's the right way I've had, I had a situation even before the podcast today, you know, what happens when you like, what, what are the right things to say to this person? And, and how can I, you know, help them keep their dignity? And how can I model to other kids as I'm working with this really agitated person, uh, some, some things that will help those other kids who are witnessing it to move forward in their life with yeah, I find, and it's not something you can kind of read in a book. I've read lots of books about trauma and understand the brain, but everyone's really different. So I think that's that's really been on my mind and just how important it is that we are places of deep dignity for all kids and, and, the, and we're also not permissive and just letting things happen, right? 
that that tension that we, we need to live in as educators is a sacred space. Nice. Uh, Kim, thank you very much uh, for joining us today with your passion and your thoughtfulness and your humility. It's been a great uh, opportunity to visit uh, Mill Bay Nature School on the pod. Please thank your your uh, orchestra outside for uh, for providing some of the uh, some of the soundtrack. Um, it's been a real privilege to spend time with you. Thank you. Wow, yes, thank Kim. you. Many thanks for uh, hosting me at Mill Bay and for joining us today. You need to come back, Jal. It's a little. I'd love to. More. There's more oomph to it now. <laughs> and, and we haven't even mentioned the fact that they were lighting fires when we came to Mill Bay. But we the, still light the, fires. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's another podcast. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Mena. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Today, our guest was Kim Andrick, head learner for Quishintal Mill Bay Nature School on Vancouver Island. Thanks, Kim, and thanks, everyone. <laughs>